Hello, film friends. I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Welcome to my podcast where I dissect films with fellow film enthusiasts and figure out why we love the medium so much. Today is an episode that I have been waiting to do for a very, very long time. We are finally talking about David Fincher's The Social Network. Chris Massarelli and Caroline Young of the Snubs Podcast are here to talk about possibly the best movie of the last decade. We break down every possible thing we could talk about uh, in under two hours, and it's a really wonderful conversation. Before we get into it, as always, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also like the show on social media. Frankly, I love movies on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. Next Thursday, I will have the newest diary entry up talking about all of the movies that I watched in the first half of February from the 1st through the 15th. A lot of good stuff on there. And then the week after that, the new series in the real world starts. Be sure to come back to that. But for now... I'm so happy to be joined by Caroline Young and Chris Massarelli of the Snubs Podcast. How are you guys doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm also, I'm doing pretty well myself. Not too bad. <laughs> well, that's great. I'm so happy to hear that. Today is incredibly special. I have been doing this show for five years now, wow. and ever since then, it has been a dream of mine to talk about the social network on here. It's widely regarded to be one of, if not the best movie of the 2010s. It's one of the premier movies of the 21st century. It has a lot of our favorites, uh, amazing actors, and a fantastic creative team behind it. So where to start with a movie like this? You know, we usually dive in to talk about our first impressions, you know, where we were when we, when we first encountered this film. And Chris, we were talking off mic that this is a bit of a different film for you guys to talk about like in the context of your show because you guys normally discuss films that were snubbed by the Oscars or left out of the awards race mm -hmm. in some way. And, you know, we'll absolutely talk about the outcome of this Oscars race a little bit later, but this was a very critically lauded movie. Audiences loved it. It was nominated many times. It won three awards. This is a very different movie for you guys. So, like, how are you feeling? Are you excited to talk about this? Oh, I'm very excited. Yeah, uh, I love this movie. This is kind of a big movie for Chris and I because uh, uh, Chris is a Sorkin nut and I'm a mm -hmm. Fincher nut. So this is like they put the two together and made some incredible magic. <laughs> so we're excited. Absolutely. Uh, I love that. Uh, I want to ask you guys about the first time that you saw the movie, but I'd like to tell my story first really quickly. Uh, when I was very young, uh, I wanted to be an actor. That was the that was everything to me when I was five years old. And that's really where my love of movies started to blossom. And then when I was about 13, I had the thought of, oh, maybe behind the camera would be cool. And right around then, I saw this movie. I saw this movie on TV right after it came out. Um, I remember when it was coming out, I remember seeing the trailer. You know, it has one of you know, the all-time trailers of mm -hmm. you know, the, the kids' chorus singing Creep. And I remember seeing that trailer thinking, like, that movie is going to be important and have something that people are going to talk about. And then when I sat down to actually watch it, what really grabbed me was the way that people talk, you know, the the dialogue and the look of it and the, you know, the, the pacing of it. Like, this was something for me where the idea clicked of, I want to tell stories. And then that sent me on this path of finding other movies that made me want to be a storyteller like Reservoir Dogs or 
um, Christopher Nolan movies. So it, it was a gateway movie for me in a lot of ways. And I don't necessarily think that that's its main reputation. And we can obviously get into that. But like, what was your guys' first experience? Like Caroline as a as a Fincher head, when did you first see this movie? And what grab what about it grabbed you? Um, when thinking about this question, it was kind of I can't remember. I know that sounds so crazy, but it came out in 2010. I was 10. Um, so I don't actually, re- I definitely saw this movie when it came out. I just don't remember seeing it for the first time. However, I do remember the first time I fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very lucky to go to a high school that offered um, a class in film and um, I rewatched The Social Network, which I had already seen for the class, and we were comparing it to Citizen Kane. And that's a great comparison that I would love to talk about today. But mm-hmm. um, uh, And I just remember just being locked in from it's a talkie movie. Not a lot happens in terms of action, but from beginning to end, I didn't touch my phone. I just I couldn't move. I People were coming in and out of the room. I was like, go away. Go ahead. Uh, and I just remember being so enthralled by it. Mm-hmm. Chris, what about you? I, just like Carolyn, I can't particularly remember the first time I saw this movie. I, I did a lot of thinking to try and figure that out, but I, I just, for the life of me, can't. Um, I do know I definitely did not see it when it came out because 10-year-old me was not the, like, film aficionado that I, I have become. But I, I what I assume happened in the timeline I'm creating in my head is uh in high school early in high school I discovered the West Wing uh same uh which is my favorite show of all time Mm. uh just literally just this weekend just kind of by chance I was flipping through channels and they were playing some some reruns of the West Wing and I sat and watched it for like three hours like I just (laughs) I, I there's something about Sorkin's writing in particular that just I, I love, like Caroline said, it's a very talky movie. Uh, and Caroline and I talk a lot of, on our podcast about how much we love movies about people just talking in rooms. And right. that's what this is. You know, there's no big fights. I mean, there's arguments, uh, but there's no uh, big fight sequences or anything crazy like that. But this movie, no matter how many times you've seen it, and the fact that it's based on a real story, like it just, like you know what's going to happen, really still keeps you enthralled. Yeah. You know, I watched it last night for the umpteenth time and I I still was watching, you know, on the edge of my seat, ready, just so excited for like, oh, I know this scene's coming up. I know this scene's coming up. And for the the fuck you flip-flops at the end is just fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. Pretentious douchebag. (laughs) (laughs) Along with my hoodie and my fuck you flip-flops. Amazing. (laughs) So... I think I fall right in the middle of you guys in that like Fincher is one of, if not my favorite filmmaker, and Sorkin is my favorite writer and is such a hero to me. And the fact that the movie is so spoken word forward and the appeal of it is the um, the script and what got everyone on board is Sorkin's writing. And it is the thing that kind of immediately grabs you about it. But I think the collaboration between the two of them is part of its reputation. Because, you know, Fincher, I don't want to say that this is an anomaly in his career, but it definitely sticks out. Because at this mm-hmm. point, he was focused mainly on doing darker thrillers, you know, getting into the uh, 
griminess of the male psyche and sexual relationships in that way. And he goes on to, you know, do that even more with Gone Girl a few years after this. But this is not a traditional biopic either. Mm-mm. You know, in fact, I, I struggle to categorize it as a biopic because, yes, it is about Mark Zuckerberg and the creation of Facebook, but it's not like the movie is not a study guide. You know, the movie is about big ideas. It's about friendship, betrayal. It has a lot about communication and where communication has gone like up till today through the lens of one of the most monumental inventions of, you know, the modern technical age. And a lot of people view this movie as a document in some ways, but I don't think that it should be. Because I think the movie is trying, and they were upfront about this during the making of it and promotions, that we're not trying to present this movie as truthful. But what they sacrifice in truth to find the drama, I think, brings about the movie's greatest strength. Like, does it bother you guys when you watch movies that are based on a true story or biopics? that do take liberties with the truth. I I think it's more on like a a case-by-case basis for me, but what do you guys think about that? Does it bother you or not? I think likewise that it's probably kind of a case-by-case basis, Um, but it's it's incredibly rare that something is taking such liberties that it really affects me. Like I, I tend to look at things as it's a movie, you know? Like at the end of the day, it's not a documentary. It's not we're not watching footage of something happening live. You know, this has been gone through the creative process. It's been written, it's been rewritten, it's been rewritten again. It's been workshopped, uh, you know, it's I think this movie has an interesting um interesting thing when it comes to this in that the the recency of it. You know, if, it, if this movie came out in 2010, the events of this movie are really 2003 to 2005. A quick turnaround. I, I was thinking last night how interesting too it would be. Not that I ever want them to make a sequel to this, but you know what Facebook has become today. You know, a follow up of what what it would look like, what a an Aaron Sorkin version of that would look like. I would, oh, and a David Fincher version would be fantastic. Yeah, and going off of that, um, I well, the one question maybe this is maybe a super philosophy about ways of looking at things. Um, There's a lot of questions that we ask each other on our show, especially when talking about things that happened a while ago. Does this matter? How it reflects our society? Does it matter? And I always come down to the same question. Well, is it good? In in this case, it, yeah, I don't think it matters. It's a great film. And I think the best thing Jesse Eisenberg did was not try to play Mark Zuckerberg. He was playing the Mm -hmm. character that was written in the script and not who Mark Zuckerberg is, which is a brilliant performance that I'm sure we'll get into. And then, um, as Chris said, talking about today and, you know, how it's been, uh, it, even though it took place five uh, years after it happens, we're in the technological revolution. So, Technologically, since 2005 to 2010, the amount of progress made there is immeasurable. Same thing with us in this movie. Um, I almost think the themes in this film about masculinity and success and ambition um, is so relevant in the age of like the big tech 
billionaires taking over the way we communicate with each other and who, especially with Musk buying Twitter, um, this is this is a time capsule of who is in charge of the way we talk to each other. And um, I th- see this as a, a character study and uh, personally my favorite character study. Yeah, it's a changing of the tides movie in a lot of ways. Um, it's a reflection, albeit a, a recent reflection, of who holds the power of communication and what is thriving at a given time. And you see in the beginning the social status and hierarchical nature of Harvard and the age group of characters that we're focusing on. And then to see how Mark Zuckerberg, this unusual worm, kind of shifted that. Mm -hmm. And it takes you on this insane journey that Sorkin knows, at least from a logline sense, is not going to be interesting to everybody. Like when you hear that, you think, why would you make a movie about Facebook? Like, well, what is this going to be? Like, Farmville the movie? Like, I don't know. <laughs> what, what could you possibly do with that? But they, as collaborators, boiled it down to its trace elements of betrayal and friendship and power and success and all of these themes that have been seeped in drama for so long that they really got at this idea of the male complex and this very specific mindset now, I don't necessarily think that the gender roles or that side of analysis is as at the forefront of the narrative as it probably could be, but the movie is definitely trying to show you this clear toxicity and desire for power that only escalated in the 15, now almost 20 years since Facebook was created. And it's so cool and obviously, you know, a, a testament to the, the genius of the creative team that they were able to see that. Like, this is going to be, you know, the, the reality for the next few years or so. And, you know, this movie could have been so dated. It could have fell so <laughs> flat and been so cringy. But it's not because it's not focused on the technical side of things, you know? Whenever something technical Mm -hmm. pops up in this movie, Sorkin diverts your attention very quickly. Like, in the beginning when Eisenberg is blogging and he goes, all right, I gotta hack into this and then bring this in, and he goes, kid stuff. Like, that's all you need to know. Sorkin Mm -hmm. boils it down to two words and basically tells you, this guy's smart. He knows what he's doing. And that is what keeps you interested way more than being like, ah, yes, we need this kind of processor. And it's very important for this network. It's like, oh, my God, can we just move on? Like, you know, that's not what this movie is. And that's something I love about Sorkin, too, is that he will throw jargon at you all day long and not explain any of it. Yeah, (laughs) because at the end of the day, it's not necessary. You know, it's yeah, I need this processor. I need this whatever. I need this computer system. Okay, keep moving on. He's you know, that's, you know, Sorkin, I think, generally writes for like a 60 minute uh, television episode. I think script is like close to 100 pages. Just insane the amount that he throws at you in one second. So he doesn't have the time to explain it all. I also was interested in something that you said, Josh, about gender politics not being at the forefront of this film. I I actually take a different point of view. I think 
gender politics are quite literally the forefront. It opens with him creating a blog about hot and not and getting dunked by his girlfriend and his reaction to rejection of women. So I, and it ends the same way. So I think Fincher especially has a great job about directing movies about the relationships between men and women without making movies about the relationships between mm-hmm. men and women. He didn't really write, I think, a a significant female character until much later in his career. And then when he did, it was incredible. But um, it was the most interesting female character ever. But and even then it was based on a novel. So that wasn't all Fincher. Right. Um, so I think that uh, he... I. I think it has everything to do with who Mark Zuckerberg is, is his relationship to the people around him. And uh, I think that that is the inherent, you talk about it not being dated. That's why that's what this, right. It's not about the technology. It's not about Facebook. It's about this one kid who wants to be in it. He wants to be in, he wants to be cool, but not in the way we think about traditional cool. He just wants to be seen as something great. And uh, his Machiavellian struggle to get that uh, being his personal downfall, not his professional. Yeah, that's definitely way more articulate than what I was trying to say. No, you're which, great. Um, I think mainly what I was trying to get at was uh, because the film is trying to make such broad, sweeping statements on major themes, you don't see it You know, the first right. few times you watch it. Um, it's not its main objective, but it's definitely right. there, and Fincher goes on to do it more, and we'll definitely do an episode on Gone Girl at some point uh, because it's one of my favorite films. But you're right, though, in that they have to show, and we'll talk about the opening, this want of acceptance. And Mark seemingly already has so many things that people really want, you know, this Harvard education and this beautiful, wonderful girlfriend who puts up with all of his shit. You know, <laughs> dating you is like dating a Stairmaster. Great That's line. Such a good line. <laughs> but to have that broken so early on, you know, this this want of acceptance and then to broaden it out to, you know, Mark then having resentment or hatred towards other people in his class or not wanting to go back to Caribbean night at 80 Pie. You know, it begins with something so small and personal, and then it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger of conflict, and it's brilliant. And he finds his kin, too, in Sean Parker, uh, where, uh, someone who's very similar in a an egomaniacal, power-hungry, kind of growing – uh, what I imagine Sean Parker is like, is and Mark Zuckerberg – too is probably a very much they grew up as a oh woe is me no girls like me (laughs) and they turned into napster and facebook right and i think that as so their camaraderie their their shared values or lack thereof um is a really interesting relationship to to watch in this movie alongside the downfall of uh, Eduardo and Mark's relationship. Yeah, that's uh, – what do you guys – I know this is probably skipping way ahead, but Justin Timberlake's casting as that character, as that Sean – is so interesting. It shouldn't just, work as well as it does. This time around, he stood out to me the most. He's so good. And he works so well because at this point, you know, he was so well-known and so popular within – the music world you know he's made a career 
basically selling his charisma and his image. And that translates so well to acting because, you know, I don't know Justin Timberlake personally, but I can at least guess a little bit that he's not this narcissistic, paranoid (laughs) entrepreneur like Sean Parker is. But he does have experience in giving off this vibe of a certain level of success and knowing every move. Because, you know, going from a group project like Sync and then becoming, you know, one of the greatest living solo pop artists of the last 25 years. And he brings that over so well, but he also gets to the depth of the craziness, too. Like, I, I totally forgot about the line where Eduardo says uh, someone would classify him as paranoid. And it's like, and they sent vans out to my house. And you're like, oh, yeah, this dude's kind of nuts. Like, he's <laughs> he's got some grime behind his eyes and you're just like I don't know about this guy and almost because he's a pop star it almost makes it work more because you're like you're not supposed to be you're supposed to be making songs you're not supposed to be in movies you know and like the fact that he owns the fact that he's out of place in a way Mm -hmm. you know he's like I'm in charge here I'm leading this fucking thing he's perfect in this movie like I I love his performance Casting is just the best. I, yes. I can't ima- I can't at least at the top of my head think of a better m- movie casting of. There's no one miscast in this movie. Uh, ex- I mean, culturally, I mean, we could talk about it later, but sure. one of the characters I think uh, racially is not cast uh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and hindsight doesn't cast Army Hammer well, but well, <laughs> well. I guess I, I would kind of disagree, but I don't want to have that conversation right okay. now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to have that conversation right now, but we will, though, because his performance in this movie, I have a lot to say about performances. it. Performances. Yes, performances. <laughs> yes. Um, so before we get into the nitty gritty here, I want to talk about this Oscars race because it is notable that the King's Speech won Best Picture and uh, Tom Hooper won Best Director over Fincher. The movie was nominated for eight Academy Awards and it won three for Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and Best uh, Original Score. And it's been talked about a lot about how people were just angered by this uh, Oscars outcome, myself included. And again, not that the Oscars mean everything, but... It's just so dumb. It's so dumb. The King's Speech means nothing. It means, is it a good movie? Yes, I would say it's a, it's a nice movie. But The Social Network captured something so beautiful. It's the right place, the right time, the right actors, the right crew, everything. It's trying to say something big about America and culture. And we really didn't know, you know how good this movie was until later on when it got that reputation. Which brings me to this question, does the fact that it didn't win Best Picture, or Fincher winning Best Director, actually help its reputation? Because I kind of think that it does. And not that our perception of the movie, you know, its, its greatness would change if it did win. But I do think that that is added fuel to the fire for people to be like, go back and watch that movie. Go back and check it out and see that it's something special and not just another Oscar Beatty biopic about fucking whatever, right? Like, I, I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, one thing that I think is an, an interesting kind of twist in fate for this movie is that this Oscar year, 
was the very first one to expand the best picture category from five nominees to ten nominees. Right. True. Mm-hmm. So one could argue that through vote splitting and because the Oscars use a weird ranked choice voting system. So really, that's that's how you get winners like Green Book or <laughs> or The King's Speech. You know, you're getting you're getting everybody's second favorite movie of the year a lot of the time. And I think I, you know, I'm I'm looking right now at the 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 list of. It's a great year. That's also it. it. Let's be. Year. I mean, Black Swan came out this year. I, I can. Mean, uh, yes. Would you mind if I rattle off the list real quick? Because it's such Please an interesting do. group. You got Winner's Bone, True Grit, Toy Story Three, The Social Network, The Kids Are All Right, Inception, The Fighter, Black Swan, 127 Hours, and like we said, The King's Speech won. Yeah. What an interesting group. It's a good year. Yeah. Well. The Oscars don't like a bummer, so that adds in uh, the Black Swan. I mean, every, the best movie never wins Best Picture, unless yeah. it's Silence of the Lambs. But, uh, I mean, there will be blood lost. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's sometimes this happens. Um, the relevance of this culturally could not have possibly be seen during this time. A cultural yeah. relevance is something that's built over time, and mm-hmm. this is something that's looked back on more than it is... Um, was seen it, it was liked but I don't know if people realized how important this movie was at the time also I love Colin Firth believe me I say this all the time on my podcast mm-hmm. I am pro Colin Firth all the time 100% he's yeah. great This, but this was a career achievement award this was Colin Firth has been doing this for a very long time and one day uh, Jesse Eisenberg will have his day I'm not sure if that's true but um, the Oscars yeah, I'd love to talk about his career at the, some point the Oscars likes to reward young women and reward older career men. Mm-hmm. And that just, yeah. they like an ingenue and they like a man that's been in the career for a while. Leo didn't win until later, but the, uh, Natalie Portman won super young. So like mm-hmm. it, it happens. Uh, this is kind of how this happens. So, um, yeah. And we talk a lot on our show about, uh, basically the, the crux of our show is that we have the, the, uh, the benefit of hindsight. You know, we if you if friends friends of our pod will know that we take people out, yeah, in in snubs canon. Update the list (laughs) in snubs canon. We will Mm -hmm. make you a not nominee. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's just we have we have the benefit of hindsight, which is a powerful tool that that you know they don't have. Yes, Uh, for sure. I think if you re if you were to revote this Oscars today, it would probably come down to Social Network, Inception, or Toy Story three from the voting public oh. based off of what's aged the voting. Well, yeah, Black Inception Swan. is another question, but Black Swan. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say Black Swan would probably get more votes, but I would also think that like I don't know because I would probably vote for. The Social Network for Best Picture, but I would be going back and forth so much in my head about Aronofsky or Fincher for Best Director. Because that movie is directed really fucking well. I mean, I love Darren Aronofsky and I love Black Swan and that's probably his best movie. Can I ask Josh, have you seen The Whale yet? Because Caroline and I have. Have not yet. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I'm very excited. I can't wait. You should be. I love Darren Aronofsky. I love everything he does. Uh, he has not made a bad movie, in my opinion. Ooh. 
That's a hot take. That is is the hottest of takes. And we can talk talk about Mother, Josh. Oh, Mother's great. I will not hear slander about Mother. That movie's fantastic. Bold opinion. I understand why people don't like it if it's anxiety inducing. Yes. But uh, in my opinion, I I think that movie's really great. But anyway, uh, I want to talk about Sorkin because, you know, he's a he's a hero of mine. And, you know, he wins Best Adapted Screenplay for this movie. And I think it's, you know, far and away his best script. I think it is a deserving win. And not just an acknowledgement that he's been working in screenplays or in film for, you know, upwards of 20 years at that point. This was off of his first nomination, though. He's been nominated three times since, but this was his first nomination. He got it right off the bat. Uh, Granted, he came from from television so he he wasn't a, a new face in hollywood but still right mm-hmm. yeah well because this was the movie because a few good men got some of the bigger nominations and uh you know you guys talked about the american president on your show you know once upon a time <laughs> once upon a time is correct <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's also a lovely movie but what makes this such an unlikely Sorkin movie and ultimately what makes it the best Sorkin movie is kind of what you said. It's kind of a bummer, <laughs> you know, and it's it, not only is it a bummer, but it's about gross people, you know, and Sorkin loves to write people who are idealists and moral and get awarded for their good deeds. And I love that <laughs> stuff. Don't get me wrong. The West Wing is wonderful. A Few Good Men is fantastic. And, like, Eduardo Savern is the beating heart of this movie, right? Yeah, he's the good guy. Yeah, he's the good guy, but everyone else around him, you don't really like them. And I don't necessarily think you're supposed to. Like, I don't think this movie is trying to be like, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg, let's go, (laughs) you know? Um, But, you know, these characters are way grosser than anything that Sorkin is used to doing, but he does it so well. Like, he makes people say shitty things to each other, mm-hmm. and it's so great. Like, no one is rewarded in this movie, and he's so good at it, and that's why I wish he would do that more. Like, I could go to bat for some of his more recent work, but that's also why I really love Steve Jobs, because that movie's full of shitty I people. I like Steve Jobs. I, I like think Steve that Jobs. movie holds up. Yeah, it's great. Like, just focusing on Fassbender being this complicated but fascinating figure I like that, but he hasn't really returned to that a whole lot recently. Well, he needs to stop working with optimistic directors. Well, he needs to have directors, you know, like he needs to stop directing. He's got to stop doing that and just get back in the passenger seat. And there's something about someone like Fincher, who's just I mean, one of my favorite quotes by Fincher is people are perverts and I like to put it on display. That's such a weird thing for someone to say. And I love weird people. So, uh. You put him with some like someone who's just a traditional optimist, someone like Sorkin, and loves a good huzzah moment. I watched all of the newsroom. And mm. you kind of just have to take someone who's like, all right, no, that's not how people are. That's not what I want to show in my movie. Put them together. And they're both perfectionists, too. Two very particular people who are going to take the time to craft something truly great. It's again, it's a match made in heaven. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I got my newsroom poster right behind me. You can see it. I will defend the newsroom until I die. Thank you. Uh, likewise. Thank you. That Thank is my you. third favorite show of all time. Yeah. I didn't know Sorkin when I watched this movie and then my mom showed me the newsroom and I was like, this is it. The way people talk in this show, this is the template for everything I'm going to write. So I also will defend that show. 
going back to what uh, you were saying, Caroline, I, I think the people are perverts quote is amazing. And it is the perfect thesis statement for Fincher's entire body of work. And on a surface level, that makes this movie seem like it's not in his wheelhouse. But he's getting at a different level of perversion here. People in this movie are obsessed in a like a feral instinct like way to success and attention and acceptance. And there is an aspect of perversion to that. And especially since the social status that is shown through college at Harvard, you know, the parties and the final clubs and the uh, pledging that Eduardo does for the Phoenix, you know, the sex and the flashiness and the glory, you know, it's very perverted. And yes, the main bulk of the conflict comes from, you know, these several different depositions that are being laid on top of each other and you have to keep flip-flopping back and forth to keep your attention going like a tennis match. But there is a grime aspect to this movie, and Fincher loves the grime. You know, and if you want to talk about Fincher's color palette, you know, this is probably up until this point was his most blue movie, because before he's used to working, like, in the gold. Um, So I think that overall this movie is in his wheelhouse. But for me, I think the biggest anomaly in his career, it's either Mank or Benjamin Button. And I love Mank, and I don't like Curious Case of Benjamin Button, personally. Neither do I. But those are two very different movies, even from a, like, source text standpoint. You know, Mank is this portrait of this aging Hollywood figure, and there's a lot of sentimentality in that film. And, you know, Benjamin Button is about aging and being on the outskirts of life in a lot of ways. So there is a heartfeltness to it. Um... Whereas this, there's this youthful grime and this constant feeling of, oh, this is going to blow up. And Fincher is great at that. I also think it's a good pairing, too, because I think Fincher loves the grime. And if you look at Sorkin's work, he's got such a thing for celebrity, you know, between whether political celebrity, newscaster celebrity, uh, entrepreneurial celebrity with the case of Mark Zuckerberg. And the combining of the grime of celebrity in this movie or the, the, the future celebrity rather, but going back to the social uh, structures that are inherent in college and Harvard that he starts and then he exploits that and goes further. I think it's just a perfect pairing of the two to create this perfect look at the grime of power and celebrity. Well, yeah. And you mentioned Mank too. I mean – uh, it's it's so hard. Again, I say the Citizen Kane connection. It's so hard to not make that connection. Oh, oh, he likes Citizen Kane. Yeah, we could tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Shocker. Um, but yeah, he he's very interested. I like the idea of the grime and how they use that. And not only celebrity, but there all these ideas. The grime is so college. This is such a great college movie. It and is. It's <laughs> so hard. I've just noticed this over the years. It's so hard to write that age, our age or recent, that kind of ambition and narcissism, but it not being uh, like a supervillain. Uh, it's just being young and naive and then that being translated to something bigger 
Um, so also, I think the setting of this is when you talk about the grime is really great. This does not work if it takes, at least the beginning doesn't work if it takes place in LA. Right. Uh, the, how cold Cambridge looks and while all this is going on, doesn't, it's so great. It almost feels like, oh, I'm going to just go in my dorm and I'm just going to isolate myself and try to create this thing. It, I, I don't think this would work if it was at Stanford. Yeah, I totally agree. That's such a great switch in the movie when they go from Massachusetts to California. Um, I like the comment that this is a great college movie, but it's also a great millennial movie in a lot of ways because, you know, everyone is acting their age whether they're trying to act older or not. Even when characters are in the deposition scenes, they seem like they still have this, you know, childlike quality to them. You know, Eduardo is trying to be professional and put together, but he like will look over his shoulder like as if he's like kind of searching for a parent. You know, Mark is, you know, giving the aura of like, I know everything. You know, you have part of my attention. You have the minimal amount. <laughs> and then the Winklevoss twins are kind of like the bullies in this scenario, you know, like. They have that scene in the one deposition where Edward's trying to explain something and one of the twins reaches over and is like, hey, how would you know? You weren't there. Like, that's mm-hmm. total, like, cafeteria, lunch table kind of argument. You know, and it's so cool that this movie, it's it's about big themes. It's got high stakes. But it's also about, you know, kids. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe not kids, but, like, young people. You know, you never lose interest. And I think that... You know, I love coming-of-age movies, and I think a lot of movies, uh, a lot of good movies about our age range, you know, exist, but it can be so easy to make something that doesn't have a lot of tension, stakes are very low, and you can lose the audience, like, okay, what, what's happening, what are the consequences, you know, we'll see what happens, kind of thing. Um, but when you get it just right, and it's all about the tone, you can end up with gold. Like, Call Me By Your Name is almost the inverse of this, Right. You know, that's a movie about a kid's feelings and it feels like it's the weight of the whole world. Yeah. And it was so cool that they were able to capture that. You know, this movie, though, places all of its stakes in the relationships between characters and, you know, your loyalty to somebody and, you know, basically setting a life up for yourself. Like Eduardo sees, you know, he's like, "Uh, you're not going to know what this is going to what this is going to mean to my father and what this is going to mean to me. Like he sees his whole life ahead of him. Mm-hmm. You know, these these are this is a movie about people who see their life path and they want to change it as soon as possible. I, and it works. Like, isn't that cool? It does like, work. And I like the comment you made about acting your age, because I mean I feel like nothing is more seen than that was the Apple teeny scene. they they don't know how to behave in a fancy restaurant it's kids that are like oh yeah you can drink whatever you want and they order juice like no one's no one's like oh i'll have an old-fashioned it's their children being served apple teenies until they're incapacitated which is i did think about that i was like who how do they even have the like who orders an apple teeny there (laughs) a college kid College yeah, kid. I will say, though, every single time I watch this movie, 
I do have that thought where I'm like, oh, damn, that looks good. Looks so you know, like, I mean, it's so green. <laughs> so, well, it's the lighting. It's that blue color grading. It's whoever color graded this freaking movie just makes it look neon. It looks like slime. Yeah. <laughs> Which works. In a weird way, it, it works, too, uh, because for people of our generation, the female sitting at that table is London Tipton from The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Yes. You know, that's in our mind. She is a, a child actor. She's a Disney Channel star. Well, and that's how Justin Timberlake got his start, too. These are Disney Channel actors in a way, you know? Well, that, it's not even her casting, which we could talk about her relevance in this film, but it, it's almost the <laughs> fact that Eduardo has a girlfriend. It really has nothing to do with her. And her character what it does to mark there's even though he's the one making the money she Mm -hmm. is a symbol of social class even though she's because he has a girlfriend and that is what he sees as something of status and he doesn't and meanwhile she's nuts meanwhile she's nuts but he doesn't care like mark 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 i think he even makes a comment at one point oh but you have a girlfriend Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Petulant child. Yeah, definitely, definitely a petulant child. Um, and even like when you know Eduardo comes out to the house in Palo Alto, and you know the two girls are on the couch playing video games, and mm-hmm. Mark comes out of his bedroom and he's just eating a Twizzler. You know, like what was he doing? Uh. <laughs> you know, this this adolescence you know carries itself throughout the entire story and the characters, even though they go you know through great change. But the essence of them stays the same. And it's really great, you know. And I think that transitions us nicely into talking about the performances because, you know, while you have these amazing words written by Sorkin, you have to have actors who can get the timing down and also find the right character to, you know, fit in these scenarios. And I think that Jesse Eisenberg is among, like, the Mount Rushmore people who can deliver Sorkin's writing perfectly. His performance in this movie is incredible. You know, he's one of the best. It's one of my favorite performances to watch, honestly. Like, you know, he's never been better. No, no, he has not. And he's done some cool stuff. Like, I'm a big defender of his movie, The End of the Tour, that came out in 2014. I I really love that movie. But he never did anything this great again. No. And what he does here is... You know, he has this anxiousness to him that he obviously is is quite known for, but he also always had this friend-like quality to him. Like, there was something about him that you liked and you were drawn to him, but there was also something there that you kind of knew and were familiar with. Everybody knows a guy like him. Yeah. Well, I think early on in his career, you know, him and Christopher Mintz plots were cut from the same cloth in a very (laughs) interesting way, but they both diverted. Well, maybe Christopher Mintz-Platz stayed on that path a little bit longer, but Eisenberg was like, I'm going to be doing something completely different. And then he went the Lex Luthor route. Yeah, I don't want to talk about that. That's not... (laughs) It's so... I can't blame him for accepting that part. No. While I wish he stayed in the indie sphere, I don't think any actor should ever do a superhero movie ever again in 2020-whatever. That's (laughs) that's my personal preference. I was like, stop doing these movies, Uh, especially if you're good. Uh, But (laughs) I... I, th- I get why he did it because after this movie came out, while well, this is the best thing that ever happened to him, it also could arguably the worst thing that happened to him. Yeah. Uh, he kept playing this part 
in different movies for the next 10 years. And I'm sure that was all he was offered because of the way he speaks, the cadence of his voice is kind of, it's hard to mold. There's some people who it's so distinct, his speaking voice that it, it immediately sets off an alarm. Like the people who speak like that, honestly, are a lot of them have this Mark Zuckerberg quality to them. Mm-hmm. So having to translate that into different kinds of roles is very difficult. So him taking a role like Lex Luthor is completely different than he probably had been offered. However, he did just end up playing Lex Luthor as Mark Zuckerberg. And then mm-hmm. we had that, whatever that was. But um, it, it's I really will- unfortunate, but he he's great. He, he's actually, he's perfect. I will say I do have some hope for his career though, because I, I haven't seen it as of the recording of this, but he recently did a, a, a miniseries on FX called Fleischman is in Trouble, and I've heard pretty good reviews of it. Um, so I'm, I'd like to see it. I'm curious how it actually is, um, but I, I generally have faith in FX. They don't really do bad things, so I'm, I'm, I have hope that his career isn't over yet. He's this is a one of the best, at least in my opinion, his best performances by an actor within the last twenty years. Mm-hmm. Um, he, it's almost like he was born to play it. He, f- nothing about him feels inauthentic. Everything that he says, no matter how d- gross it is, it, it's it doesn't. He doesn't understand that what he's saying is wrong, or he doesn't really see the problem in it. Even, the, I mean, the first scene is such a great example of this incredible opening to a movie fantastic the best um and he doesn't realize that anything he's saying is socially awkward Mm -hmm. and or makes him set come off a certain way he's the most least self-aware person yet feels the need to want to come off as someone who's self-aware well, it comes back to one of the the final line of the movie. Rashida Jones says, "You're not an asshole, Mark. You just are trying so hard to be." Yes, and that is that's what, and he plays that perfectly. Yeah, I love what you said about the fact that he's clearly not self aware, but he has to come off as if he thinks that he is self aware. And what really comes through is that he has a limited filter. You know, at very very specific moments does the filter come up and does he realize that he like fucked up you know there's that scene in the in the opening scene when he's like he says to erica because you go to bu and you can clearly tell that she's unbelievably upset and he's just like do you want to get some food (laughs) you know like or there's the scene when you know they're gathering interns when they're doing like the coding and the shots and he says to eduardo yeah we should just have him carry around a chicken for a week that was mean you know like he you know, that's like the only other moment where he's like, ah, OK, that was that was wrong. But like, you know, the rest of the time, everything he says is just so mean. And he clearly has like a lot of emotional problems, which, again, is a good connecting thread throughout. Like most of his other performances is that, you know, he's somebody with anxiety who's trying to succeed in an adversity filled world. But then here he's also punching up. You know, him as Lex Luthor doesn't work because Lex Luthor is one of the biggest, you know, punching down villains like ever. He's the world leader, you know, and in this, he's the David going up against the Goliath. 
and that's what makes it work so well is because you know because he adds this anxiety and there's just so much energy to mm-hmm. what he's saying like does he sleep at all like i mean like when he's running across the campus like in the snow and his flip-flops and his shorts you're just like this man is going like and that's all he's ever thinking about is the next step and keep going and going and going and it costs him everything because of it you're just so fascinated by him and again you know he gets that adolescent quality but you always believe that he knows what he's talking about this guy is is clearly someone who has the next step in mind and you believe it it's so it's such a wonderful performance it's so Mm -hmm. great also what the writers do just real quick what the writers do such a good time is they have no interest in getting you to like him but they do have an interest in getting you to understand him and in turn it makes you sympathize with the character because you understand him so well and uh i i just like his quieter moments more emotional like he has that face that can make him look like a kicked puppy um which just he he can be so gross and then you're like oh uh, the only person i can say that does uh that kind of just as well as i think kieran culkin is very good at that um oh yeah right he would have done he would have done this he would have been great in this role too absolutely and your your zuckerberg is only as good as your Saverin, and i don't think they could have picked anyone better to play eduardo than andrew garfield um, Andrew Garfield in this movie was a revelation for a lot of people, and his career has gone on to amazing heights. I mean, he's one of my favorite actors working today. He's he's my favorite actor under the age of 40, for sure. Mm-hmm. I love him. Yeah, and again, being someone who is totally leading with emotion and leading with heart and is the, the perfect foil for Mark in so many ways. Like, Eduardo really cares about what people think about him. Uh, and, and Mark does too, in, in a way, but like Eduardo is very forward about it, right? You know, he really cares about how he's perceived. He cares what his father thinks. He wants girls to like him. You know, he's incredibly excited about the finals club prospects and getting into that club because he, he thinks he can get in, whereas Mark thinks he deserves to get in. And it's their friendship that and their chemistry that really works so well. And obviously, you know, Eduardo Saverin in real life is a Brazilian man and Andrew Garfield is not, you know, and and that can obviously affect your perception of the performance. But like, you know, for me, he's just so perfect and I love watching him because he's so good at the energy and um, the, the timing of everything and bringing this uh, in over his head quality and trying to maintain control that it doesn't bother me, but obviously, you know, there's a bigger conversation about what actors should be getting what roles and having accurate representation in film. But like, what do you guys think? Does it bother you? What's your take on that? My take is it wouldn't happen today, but this was 2010. And I know it, that was uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's pretty recent, but it was a, a fairly different time when you kind of think about it in terms of of stuff like this. Uh, Caroline, you made a face when I said it wouldn't happen today. Yeah, I think it would. <laughs> I, and, the, and the reason being is because, the, and I hope, I think don't think this is uncouth. Um, the the, act, the uh, person Andrew Garfield is portraying, that's not who, it doesn't have an impact into who the character is. And it he, the character is incredibly American with a background 
mm-hmm. it, it it actually doesn't have quite too much to do with this character. Well, it has nothing to do. It with has it. nothing to do with it. So I, I actually think do think it would happen. I disagree. I think really? casting directors have, have gotten. I think. Hollywood's sick of backlash from it. You know, I think it, it has happened recently with things like Scarlett Johansson and Ghost in a Shell or, you know, Aloha a few years back, stuff like that. But I think casting directors are, are, and, and the Hollywood execs in general just don't want to deal with it anymore. So I think the, you know, we could get into debates about wokeness and what that looks like in Hollywood, but I don't, I just, I don't see it happen. If you were to cast the social network today, the character who plays Eduardo would not be a white man. However, he's also half Jewish. And sure. And Andrew Garfield is Jewish. So, I mean, well, you know. So they were halfway there. Well, I know, but like. <laughs> but I think that someone like Anya Taylor Joy is plays people who are, you know what I mean? Like. It's kind of different. It's kind of it's super complicated. I think that it depends on the part, and I think that this part is more uh, has to do with his performance and his relationship but to a character. I, again, I disagree. This is a real person. If if this was a movie, uh, if this was a movie about fake people, uh, characters that Aaron Sorkin created. Then I don't think. Then I think it, we would be having a different conversation. I think because Eduardo Saverin is a real person, I think that kind of changes the casting process in 2022. Possibly. I mean, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier that the the characters and the setting and the relationships are more used as a shell for the greater themes and the drama that the movie is going for. And I think that, you know, Andrew Garfield was pretty candid during like the making of documentary saying like he didn't have many conversations with Eduardo. He wasn't really mm-hmm. trying to be Eduardo. And I think that, you know, just on a surface level, you know, recognizing that his name is Eduardo Saverin and that in real life he is a Brazilian man and a half Jewish man, as you mentioned, uh, Caroline, you know, that may raise a red flag for some. But I don't see this being the case where it's like, oh, if they if they recast that, they have to cast a Brazilian man in that role. Like we mentioned, his you know nationality doesn't really matter, have much effect on the story, sure. and a lot of factual liberties are taken. So I don't really see this being you know the strongest case mm-hmm. for recasting. Now, if it was a closer examination of his culture, and you know it was seeped more into the narrative about like uh, cultural differences or a racial divide or something along those lines, then yeah, they would probably, you know, take the leap to find somebody else. Mm-hmm. But again, that's not really part of the narrative, you know? No, I agree. You know, it, it's one leap that they have to make in a, in a sea of larger leaps. So I, I, I'm not personally arguing it. I think I'm just saying the realities of Hollywood in 2022 wouldn't create this, I guess. Well, I, like I, I completely agree with you. I think he was perfect, perfectly cast, and uh, he did an excellent job. I just think Hollywood has changed in the last twelve years in a way that that you're not going to see this very much anymore, and you're not going to find many half Brazilian, half Jewish actors out there. You know, that it's going to be a, a thin, uh, thin group. Yeah, to pull it's from. a it's a very specific group to pull from. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
but there's something so brotherly about these two. You know, they work so well together because they complement each other and uh, each other's um, like personality differences. But you also see that they're here for each other, like right off the bat. You know, their first conversation together. It's only like five lines, but it's like, oh, I heard you broke up with Erica. Are you okay? You know, I'm here for you. And then it's like, oh, we're ranking girls. We need the algorithm. And then boom, you know, they're just working together. You know, you just see their connection like right off the bat, which makes it even more heartbreaking, you know, as you watch them drift further and further apart over the course of the movie. And then the, you know, in insane crash and burn that is, you know, the uh, I'm coming back for everything scene which I think is the best scene in the movie. And mm-hmm. Garfield's performance is so good because you can really feel the anguish of like, you know, and how hurtful this all is. And that's one of the things about the movie that I really love is the fact that it's a movie about friendship and it shows you the damage that can be done that, you know, that comes with, you know, cutting ties in one way or dealing with betrayal or losing somebody that you love. And again, Sorkin sets that up so well. And it's another reason why him and Fincher were so good together is that like, you know, Sorkin is a king of setup. He loves writing with a secret. You know, he learned that from William Goldman. You know, a character has a secret, and the writer, it becomes like a deadline for you. You just can't wait to reveal it. And, you know, he does that with this falling out. When they're flip-flopping back and around between different depositions, you want to know, like, what happened here? You know, they were so good, like, 30 seconds ago. I really want to know when it went off the rails, and you get more and more information as the story goes along. And again, that pairs itself so nicely with Fincher, who is one of the most energetic directors that we have, you know, today. He's obviously a very visual director, but he's so good at pacing and keeping the camera moving and, you know, the the timing of everything. Like the relationship then becomes, you know, Sorkin is the potential energy and Fincher is the kinetic energy of the story. Like Sorkin loves to build it up and keep you waiting and he's just really testing you like just wait till you get to the hour 40 mark you're going to be shitting your pants and you do because then Fincher comes in with you know letting all of this energy completely be released in the flow of everything and you know it's a heartbreaking scene but I'm also so jazzed up when it comes on every time I see it I'm so happy to watch it. Some say that scene is inspired by uh, when I decided to take the pot away from Chris and uh, that that is what happened. He said uh, his Prada was at the cleaners. Um, but yeah, I mean, that seems the best. Absolutely. That's such a good that's such a good. It's such a good monologue. There's so many different things happening in that moment, not only just the. Justin Timberlake's being such a smug asshole. He's so good. Oh my god! I want it seriously. What the hell's the chicken? Because <laughs> you know what? You know what? Not, that's such a good. What Justin Timberlake is doing is so good because nothing is more frustrating than when you're upset and there's someone not taking you seriously. Oh, definitely. Especially like like they think that it's some big joke. Oh, how funny is it that you actually care about this? That's like the nothing grinds my gears more and you can see that's happening. Uh Andrew Garfield feels he's a lot of different feelings. He feels financially like I just lost like my money. He's feeling like I just lost my best friend and I just lost my time. Yeah. He, 
he, he's and he broke up with his girlfriend that very same day. I mean, that was mm-hmm. maybe that's maybe that was the only win of the day. But uh, <laughs> he's feeling all these things, and then this little annoying little shithead is in the corner thinking this is hysterical, and um, there's. It's also very interesting to watch Eisenberg there because he is taking him seriously. While he he tries to play big man on campus, like, I don't care, it's just business. As Garfield keeps talking and there's something in Mark's head realizing that, again, it's the it's the filter. It's like something's going on being like the it's a there's a teeny bit of guilt Mm -hmm. that he knows what he did. And he knows it was probably the wrong thing to do, but he's still trying to be big man on campus. It's one of his most human moments in the movie, I'd say. Uh, yeah. Uh, Eisenberg's. Because you do see that kill. His reading of, you signed the papers, is like my favorite line reading in the movie. Because you can just see, like he's almost about to cry in that mm-hmm. moment. Because you can see how, you know, he knew that this was the reality, you know, being the one who orchestrated this. But he still feels bad, even though he doesn't want to show it. He clearly is tore up inside and he lets that out when he says, you know, later, like, Sean, you didn't have to be so hard on him. You know, inside he's Mm -hmm. even he's like, ah, fuck. And then that leads into seeing the I'm CEO bitch business cards and, you know, just thinking about, ah, what does this become? You know, is such a great moment in the end of his character arc. On the topic of setups, and I want to talk about, you know, get back to performances in a second, but with the Sean Parker role, there's such great, you know, setup and payoff in terms of his relationships with women and how he's always with younger people. And, you know, when Eduardo comes to, because it it opens with him waking up with Dakota Johnson Mm -hmm. at Stanford. (laughs) And, you know, he's like, oh, I don't go to school. I'm an entrepreneur. And you know, your thought is like, okay, what's going on here? You know, like, how did this happen? And then, you know, he gets, uh, when Eduardo comes out to the house and he's got the girls there, he's like, Sean, how old are they? You know, and he keeps asking that. And you can read up about his past controversies. And then, you know, he gets busted with the interns at the party at the end. It is the, it's the perfect setup pay off rise and fall from grace for that character and then he's like do you think eduardo planted it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you mean the coke that the interns brought no of course not (laughs) but you know what i mean like that is such good sorkin my favorite sort i think going off of the sorkin setup kind of thing is like my my all-time favorite Sorkin setup and story arc ever is the I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't seen, but the MS storyline on the West Wing. Oh yeah, which culminates in my favorite episode of TV ever. Um, is just masterful storytelling that starts as a small little drop in season one, like oh the president has MS and nobody knows, and then goes on, and it's just I. And the wall Sorkin's a master tumbling of, down. Yes. It's a master. Sorkin's a master of setup and payoff. Yeah. I love pretending to know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> I No, it doesn't matter. Uh, I have no idea what you're talking about. So we're going to move on. Um, <laughs> I, I'm kidding. Uh, I hear it's good. Uh, 
But <laughs> you hear the West Wing's good. <laughs> I heard it through the grapevine that uh, hear good some things. people hear good have things. enjoyed it. Um, it's long. I've seen a few episodes, but if I'm being honest, it's very long, and I have not sat through the whole thing. Uh, I, th- if you don't mind, do you mind talking about Army Hammer for a second? I was just gonna. I was just gonna bring it up. Please go ahead. Um, I am going to. My next response is going to take out everything we know because that's a tough situation to talk about yes very because it's very odd it, it, nothing seems nothing seems very cut and dry in that not saying anyone whatever like I, I don't i feel like no matter how much i know about that situation i still feel like i'm learning new stuff about that situation every day and it's incredibly still ongoing so i don't feel like i'm in any place to speak on it um however i'm gonna talk about his performance in this um, he's so well cast. Um, the look is perfect. That is exactly the kind of person who goes to Harvard in Rose. Uh, and <laughs> and is desperately trying because he's an athlete and his father, there's a lot of insinuations in this movie with that character. Like, why is he, did he get in for his rowing talent? Did he get in because his father's very wealthy and influential? Like, he is so similar to Mark Zuckerberg in the exact opposite way. He has everything that Mark Zuckerberg wants. Um, and then also uh, Army Hammer has everything. The one thing that he wants from Mark Zuckerberg, basically. Uh, in this kind of cat and mouse game a little bit that it's not even cat and mouse because... Uh, Eisenberg as Mark Zuckerberg is just like so far on the yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. on the um, road, but the almost juxtaposition between those two characters and almost no matter how much you have, it's never enough uh, is so interesting. And uh, they almost feel like pests in a lot of ways, but also are such a f- Interesting, significant detail to this more intimate story between Eduardo and uh, Mark that um, they just shine. And uh, he is just that kind of. I don't even know how to explain it, not authoritative, but definitely commanding attention from the presence that comes from Army Hammer's natural charisma is captivating. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Caroline's a big Army Hammer fan. Before, uh, before all we found out about everything that's happened between the first few years, I thought Army Hammer's no, career know. was incredibly interesting. And um, I think Call Me By Your Name and his performance in that movie is one of the best performances I've ever seen. But uh, that's how I'm going to leave it. Uh, I also think it should be noted that I think this performance or these performances are probably on the Mount Rushmore of one actor playing twins. Uh, Lindsay Lohan and the Parent Trap. Lindsay Lohan's up there. Absolutely. Don't even. Yeah. No, Lindsay Lohan and the Parent Trap also makes the Mount Rushmore. Is the Mount Rushmore. (laughs) It's four spots. Two are the Winklevoss twins. Two are Lindsay Lohan. I was just going to say, you know, those two movies cover the whole mountain. So there you go. Um, Yeah, I don't really want to, you know, delegate the whole Army Hammer conversation. Uh, Like you said, Caroline, it's ongoing. It's very complicated. We did Call Me By Your Name earlier this year on the show, and, you know, I said then I didn't really want to talk too much about it, uh, and his performance in that movie is also phenomenal. Well, we just did seven and avoided the Kevin Spacey <laughs> concert uh, all, all together. Yeah. Um, 
What I was thinking was that like the Winklevoss twins aren't supposed to be likable, right? Like in Call Me By Your Name, you understand why Chalamet falls in love with him because you kind of fall in love with him yourself. You know, he's incredibly charismatic. He has this very effective, controlling presence. You know, he's incredibly charming. You understand how this person could be so smart and lovable and funny. And the Winklevoss twins just aren't funny. Like, they have no sense of humor. No. They're honestly kind of stupid. I mean, the Larry Summer scene is amazing. Awesome. And I absolutely want to talk about it. But, you know, and, and what exactly do they do in terms of Harvard Connection or Connect You? You know, they, Nothing. other than the money aspect, you know, what are they actually contributing to the project? You know, they don't really get into that side of it. But what's really interesting is that you know, the, the whole central conflict of, of surrounding the drama is that they are the ones whose idea was theoretically stolen. But at no point do you root for them, right? No, at no point am I like, let's go Tyler and Cameron. You know, like that doesn't happen. They're so unlikable that you at no point are you really rooting for them because they're also just so arrogant, you know, and entitled you know, the best thing about that Larry Summer scene is they just come waltzing into his office and they're like, you know, this guy stole from us. Do something about it. And, you know, there's that great exchange where Larry Summers is like, you enter into a code of ethics with the university, not with each other. I'm sorry, President Summers, but what you just said makes no sense to me at all. I'm devastated <laughs> by that. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're also so annoying. Like they almost make you like Mark more. Because I'm, you're also like, I don't want anything to do with these people. I don't think they deserve a dime because they didn't do anything on this project. It almost, weird, in a weird way, makes you support someone you don't even like. Yeah, and, and again, you know, there's so much gray area with this movie, you know, you're, because you're following someone who is so already unlikable. And, you know, I love movies that do that, where the main character is someone who is morally or personally questionable. But it makes it such an engaging experience because you want to spend time in this world because you find them so fascinating. Um, and, you know, again, his performance is, is really great. And also the deep fake CGI on the twins still looks fantastic. Like oh, yeah. Marvel movies oh, yeah. look like shit nowadays. Like this <laughs> it is looks so bad. 12 years old. Seamless. And it still looks fantastic. Like there's no part that looks uneven or gross or out of place it's aged so well it is timeless and seamless can i say the same can be said for the parent trap too <laughs> seamless. <laughs> yeah well uh, i love the, the parent trap the thing is also you know you're that's what happens when your director is so meticulous that they will do it as many times as they yeah. will do it until it's right i mean there's great i believe he made andrew garfield do that scene where he yells at mark like a lot I don't, this wasn't a one, I mean. They went through a lot of laptops. I went through a lot of laptops, <laughs> which, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. Also, I love when he breaks the laptops. It's so good. Oh, yeah. Uh, How about now? You still wired in? <laughs> you still wired in? Um, so good. But yeah, it looks seamless, and I can't imagine another director. I mean, I know we already talked about Fincher, but taking the time that he takes with each and every character because we've gone through everyone but the women which we can touch on too um they're not in it a lot this is obviously a story about you know masculinity but um he makes sure even the minor characters 
Like, I'm not sure Army Hammer's character, anyone else wouldn't take the time for him with mm-hmm. that boat scene. Are you kidding me? <laughs> when they're freaking rowing, yeah. rowing has never looked better. Yeah. Like within the hall, the Mountain King playing and the Henry Royal Orgata. It's crazy. It's like the best, like, three minutes of it. A- like anyone's movie ever and he's just like yeah we're just gonna toss it in <laughs> doesn't matter to the plot no, but you gotta see at all watch, watch what i can do <laughs> it's so wild yeah that was a scene last night when i was watching it where i was like do we need this and then it starts to escalate and i was like oh yeah i mean I'll what are you on. gonna do cut it <laughs> <laughs> well it's like you need to see them losing because like you know that's the most obvious metaphor of the movie is you know getting them to rock mm. bottom by losing this race so i mean you kind of have to have it and obviously the movie's full of you know visual things like that so good um but like combined with the music and how atticus ross and trent reznor make it their own like putting this electronic turn on it you know at the end where it goes into that like bum you know it's like they know that it's a very well-known piece but they're like we're gonna put our own spin on it and make it its own thing in this movie and i mean Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, I mean, their score is, you know, just incredible. It's easily one of my all-time favorite scores. It's just so fitting. It's up there. And, you know, how it's so pensive and thought-provoking with how connected, you know, the audience feels to it. And it really asks you to, you know, understand what you're feeling inside when you hear it. But it also, you know, at points feels like a party, like... You know, it points like it feels like a party is like trying to come out. Like when you're like if you're like at a house party and you're outside listening to the music that's playing inside, like that's kind of how it feels like when they're having lunch with Sean Parker. You know, the music has this muffled quality to it. And then they start ordering drinks and appetizers and it really Mm -hmm. starts to come out. You know, that is just so intentional and making it all so electronic. And, you know, maybe, you know, it's not electronic to what we more normally associate with now, like Tron Legacy or something. But it's so, you know, it's (laughs) no disrespect to Daft Punk, but it works so well, again, because this is a technological movie and we see, you know, the old ways and analog just constantly being taken over. Like, you know, we see in the beginning with that cross cut between uh, the Phoenix Club party and the creation Mm -hmm. of Face Smash, where the party is all analog, right? It's all old. It's, you know, physical power having people in one place and alcohol and cards and all of that. And then the technology of face smash comes in and takes it over. You know, that's the exact same with the music and the score, you know, like they start off with this, you know, piano, the, the tune like bum, 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 you know, hand covers bruise is, is so great. And then as the story progresses, it becomes more pulsating and electronic and it, really like get your heartbeat going right because everything is escalating and it's such a great choice and i think any other film score like i'm not a film score snob but like a bad film score can really stand out but every choice made in the music is just so dramatically fitting and i I love it so much it's one of my favorites yeah i i i love trent reznor i i love that he has kind of taken off especially after this this is such a Mm -hmm. memorable score the piano sound i i like almost hear that sound i'm from boston and uh and whenever i'm kind of around that area 
I hear the social network theme song near the Harvard campus. So it it just definitely strikes a chord. No pun intended. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Yeah, they're the best. Uh, And, you know, obviously they they went on to work with Fincher again with uh, Gone Girl and Mank, both fantastic scores. Oh, yeah. Um, both very different scores than oh, yeah. uh, Social Network. Um, but they've become celebrity composers in a lot of way. And it's and it's really cool that they, you know, this was their claim that like we're here, we're going to make this movie something different. And to take on these atmospheric tones that fit the theme of the movie really well. And obviously that carries over into Gone Girl with Fincher having them go to massage parlors and listen to that music and how atmospheric but deeply uncomfortable that music is and in Mank it's much more uh, a symphony you know fitting in with the uh, the golden age of Hollywood you know and obviously winning the Oscar for Mm -hmm. Soul best part of that movie in my opinion Um, but they're what makes them so interesting as composers is that like they have a style but they adapt it so well you know like they bring in their uh, particular sounds that they love that match up with the story and the frenetic nature of the the Fincher, you know, directing style. It's a match made in heaven. I mean, like really every single person on this team is giving 110 percent and it's fantastic. Uh, I wanted to go back to something you had mentioned earlier, Caroline, about the female performers in this movie. Uh, obviously, two of the um, main female characters in this movie are... Uh, Erica, played by Rooney Mara, who's in the opening scene and is fantastic. And then uh, Brenda Song, who plays Christy, who is uh, their business partner early on and turns into uh, Andrew Garfield's girlfriend. I think Rooney Mara, in the, you know, the short amount of time that she's given, is brilliant. You know, I think she is a fantastic actress. And you know, being a part of the inciting incident, you know, being the one who dumps Mark and then that spirals out of control into the rest of the story is interesting and you know but that gets into the question of whether or not her character is more passive than active in the narrative and Sorkin has of course had a lot of criticism about his female characters over the years I think more of that criticism can be pointed towards Brenda's song because I think she's good but I have no idea what she's doing in this movie no idea she lights the scarf on fire and knocks it over. Yeah. Cool. What? Sorkin's not known for his women, except I like... Which is, except C.J. Craig in the West Wing. She's good. Um, I'm just, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to rattle Chris. Uh, yeah, watch, watch it with the West Wing song. Uh, I, Rooney Mara's great. I think this is, to be fair, Rooney Mara's great in this. No, 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 she's great. I just... It's interesting in her career, in her, like, what happened after this and what project she did. Um, she still seems to be someone's memory, still, mm-hmm. in, in terms of the movies that she makes. She's always the memory of someone's... Bro- I mean, she's in her. She, like, that's... She kind of plays the same influence in this person's life. Um, so she almost acts like his muse, where I feel like she's so much bigger than that. So, But mm-hmm. she's so good in this. Um, I don't know what... Brenda Song's doing in this movie, and I also don't know what Rashida Jones is doing in this movie. Yes, okay. I love Rashida Jones. Agreed. But other than saying, you know, what she does and talking about why they settle at the end, and then she states, you know, the final thematic 
you know, claim of the movie, which is good and earned, but she's only like half of a character. Really, She's an expositional character in a movie that doesn't need it. Yeah. That's basic. Um, this is another, this is Sorkin trying. <laughs> I liked Molly's game. I also like good. Molly's game. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, of the three movies he directed, I think that was probably my favorite. Um, yeah, I mean, most of his stories, like, I think because he's so used to the um, male-centric natures of his scripts that he does have a tough time with the female characters. I will say that Joe Galloway in A Few Good Men uh, is one of the better examples. I mean, obviously, there's been criticisms about her as well. But here with the Brenda Song character, other than Andrew Garfield, you know, mentioning something about Asian women during the Caribbean night scene, there isn't a whole lot of connective tissue with her character, especially when, you know, she starts going crazy. That, to me, just comes completely out of nowhere. It very much comes out of it's nowhere. It's funny. It's definitely funny, and, you know, Brenda Song is really given it, and in the making of documentary, which is really great, you know, she mentions how much fun she had doing that scene because she felt that it was relatable, that every girlfriend has that crazy side just waiting to come out at one point or another. Speak for yourself, Brenda. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Macaulay Culkin's got it coming. <laughs> oh, man, that's funny. But I don't really know what the main motivation of this character is. Like, is it just because, you know, it's something that Eduardo mentions early on that he wants and it, you know, ends up getting turned on its head later but if that's the case, you know, introduce her early, make her much more of a presence as opposed to just having her blow him in the bathroom and then order apple teenies and then talk about Marlins. You know, like, I just don't really know what the trajectory yeah. of this character is supposed to be. She's Maybe just a lot further. I guess so. Maybe give us inklings that she is crazy rather than going from I'm going to have an apple teeny to I'm going to light your bed on fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because <laughs> that is the trajectory. Right, right. Yeah. I think it's more probably just a symbol of chaos for Andrew Garfield because this when she does light it on fire. I I, I don't care about that scene. I, yeah. I think it's fine. Uh, but I think that moment combined with the phone call about the money and then things being frozen and there being kind of like financial chaos and him not being there and him trying to run a company while also trying to have this internship in New York. And then also having this girlfriend who's go like, it, everything is happening so crazy around. And then it leads up to the moment of it. Like he explodes. I think it's just more just to like, keep Andrew Garfield just like keep winding him up like let's just wait just wait he's gonna he's about to snap I think this is just another reason to kind of wind him can I say too I think I, I think everybody does sympathize with Andrew Garfield's character in this but at the end of the day he is making kind of poor choices from a from a business perspective he's he's twice okay, okay okay I guess that's fair I guess that's he fair. trusted. I mean, I've been. You know what? You got me there. And he trusted his friend. I mean, when you go, when yeah. money becomes a part of your friend, like yeah. you've never entered a bad deal, like with a that's with true. a friend. Caroline, wait until Snubs gets advertisers. Then we're done. <laughs> we're done. Well, I don't know. I've had experiences where money gets involved in a friendship, and then like you made a wrong decision about a financial thing, and then it's obviously not as big as putting my entire life savings in 
but um would you like to name names on the podcast? no i would not <laughs> okay um but that's a thing like he just trusted him it, obviously should there have been a contract should there have been all this yes but in his mind no, he's my best friend he's not gonna screw me over yeah sure. but he also then accepts when he fucks up like when he's in that scene with the the business people mm-hmm. and they're saying like he gets like oh 34 percent you know and he says like Oh, I, I should have had my lawyers there. And to be honest, I thought they were yeah. my lawyers. You know, he's like the only person who accepts that he did anything wrong. And he just puts that up front. Um, I agree that the scene with the phone call and the scarf and the fire, like the phone call is great. And I think you're right, Caroline, that it is this, you know, amalgamation of all this chaos happening at once. But because Brenda Song's character is so underbaked. I don't think it's mm-hmm. as chaotic as it probably could be. Oh, I agree. I will say that scene does have one of my favorite lines in the whole movie where he is trying to find the present and uh, she's like, you haven't changed your relationship status on Facebook. And he's like, I don't know how. And she goes, you're the CFO. How do you not know how to change your relationship status on Facebook? And he goes, it's a little embarrassing. So you should take that as a sign of trust that I would tell you that. <laughs> this is so great. I also don't know how to do that. Facebook's confusing. In this essay, I will. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a male movie and the all the best writing is going to go to the uh, to the male characters. And so um, it's unfortunate that the female characters get swept under the rug. It um, happens. <laughs> yeah, that's sucks. the sound of Caroline accepting defeat right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. It is. And like I said, I love Sorkin, um, but he kind of falls short when it comes to those relationships. And and I understand that because he's so hyper focused on, you know, the male characters and you can definitely feel the passion but I feel like all of the mistakes that he makes regarding the female characters are so easily avoidable. There's this book I have called uh, Considering Aaron Sorkin that's like a series of essays. Got it just right on here. on different aspects. Get the fuck out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> oh, my God. This is like Film Bro Olympics. Also, check out the Coen Brothers interviews if you're interested. How about this book by Ron Howard and Clint Howard that I got sitting right here? <laughs> I just bought Quentin Tarantino's new book. I can't even front. <laughs> picked it up yesterday and I almost bought it. <laughs> I can't even front. Caroline, I need you to know that I try so hard to stay away from the film bro stereotype. I try <laughs> so hard, but at the end of the day... Sometimes it's just unavoidable. We are what we are. We are what we are. That's right. That's right. But back to the social network. Um, Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I consider this a perfect movie. And one of the things I wanted to ask you guys is like, you know, I say that and we um, we've identified, you know, some flaws or some shortcomings. But in my mind, a movie can have flaws like these and still be perfect. Um, do you guys share that mindset? How do you look at flaws in movies? Like, do you look at something and say, okay, this is a shortcoming. And so it takes it down a couple notches. Obviously it's pretty subjective, but how do you guys evaluate movies in that way? I feel like I'm on hot ones. (laughs) I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, Thank you. That's a great, that's a, no, that's a good question. Um, I, I, it's funny you say that because I wrote down, is this a perfect movie? Um, I think 
Okay, it's in my top 10 favorite films of all time. So I'll, I'll preface it by saying that. Um, I think the idea of a perfect film is interesting because I say that all the time. It's a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I say that, what I mean, what I mean is I think the intention is there and it's executed as well as you could possibly execute a film. Like we could talk about the problems with that, but then almost taking away X, Y, and Z creates different problems. You know, we could be like, oh, well, maybe this doesn't work, but then like the girls don't work. Right. But then we take that away. It's like, okay, then we don't get that great scene or or a certain line here and there that doesn't work as well. Like maybe that apple teeny scene doesn't feel as youthful. You know, there, there's different or um, if Mark Zuckerberg isn't at that bar at that time meeting those girls, does he have that great interaction with Rooney Mara? Like there's different things that mm. taking away or doing this in X, Y, and Z or spending more time doing this means you're spending less time doing this. And then is the film as well paced? You know, there's ways of being like, hmm, maybe that didn't work. But in the accumulation of things, there was a there was a vision, there was a script and it was executed as well as possibly could be. And that's a perfect film. I I think it gets dangerous when you throw around the word perfect because the textbook definition of perfect obviously is nothing. Nothing in life is perfect, even though we like to throw that word around a lot. So I think it's it's this movie is probably as close as it can be to perfect uh, because everything. Caroline, I I I I don't think I'm going to add much because I think Caroline kind of summed it up. Perfect is a a a commonly used word that uh, is a it's it's probably one of the most misused words in the English language. To quote Robin Williams in my favorite movie, Goodwill Hunting, it's not about whether you're perfect; it's whether you're perfect for each other. And David Fincher and Aaron Sorkin, they were perfect for each other. Yeah, good well quote. Said, good Caroline. quote. Listeners yeah. of this show know that's a top three favorite movie for me too. Um, so I think that actually transitions us nicely to talking about analysis. So let's go to analyze this. This movie is, I think, adding to you know the, the idea of this movie being perfect is that I take away something new about it each time I watch mm-hmm. it. You know, I think the technology and the communication themes are pretty upfront from the get-go. But there was a line that stood out to me this time around that really proves how timely it is. And it's in that scene that you mentioned, Caroline, where... Mark sees Erica at a restaurant about halfway through the movie and he's like, you know, I, I really want to go somewhere and talk. Can we you know, go somewhere? And she's like, no, right here's fine. And she says, uh, you know, you called me a bitch. Talk about my bra size and the internet. And she says, y- you write your snide bullshit from a darkened room because that's what the angry do nowadays. And I was like, incels. Oh, yeah. Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. But still, I mean, all of the ideas uh, and how we perceive toxic masculinity today, they're all here. And honestly, it makes me think of Fight Club to bring, you know, Fincher back into this of like, you know, everyone having a voice and having this superhero or like mentality where you're like, I have a gift and I am going to be the one to change the world with this idea. And that's what's driving these people. I mean, like in that moment after Erica says that, Mark gets even more upset and thereby gets even more motivated because this is a story about people who were so emotionally damaged and didn't know how to process their feelings so greatly 
and they only knew how to connect through invention and power and business and the superiority complex that it changed all of us forever they decided to take it out on us <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> well yeah i not to I, I i know you at one point want to talk about you know what's aged kind of terribly facebook has aged terribly i i don't want to get political or anything but it it, it has become a political giant in a way and has Again, for better or for worse, depending on where you're standing, has fundamentally changed democracy and society as a whole. And we have that weird hindsight with Facebook. Um, and it's – I think I have a hard time – you said every time you watch this movie, you take something different away from it. Every time I watch this movie and we fall further and further into the society that Facebook has created, I find it – more and more of a greek tragedy it's like oh they think this is the ending but uh, the ending has yet to come we you know we're watching it continue in real time and it's uh, so facebook and mark zuckerberg as a person have aged horrendously well and also and another i like some of the the names of people that get thrown around in this movie too like peter Thiel, who is now a big time uh you know i guess he probably was back then too but he's a major political donor uh often for uh you know conservative causes and conservative candidates and he is often criticized uh and you know i think it's interesting that he is a, albeit a small one a character in this story well, you say aged terribly, and I think in a way, but almost if we watch this movie in a vacuum, right? Let, let's say this isn't about us. Wouldn't sure. you say, hey, where do you think this is going to go? Oh, no, this is a bad idea. These these are going to be these are going to be supervillains taking over the sure, world. But I don't think even in our wildest dreams, we could have imagined the extent. Sure, because it's so real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this Obviously, if you're going to point to people who probably shouldn't be in charge, <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg, it's him, right? It's someone so emotionally complex in a way that's mostly negative. Chris, all of the reasons that you stated for why you think that Facebook has aged poorly, like those things in, in my mind, make the movie age really well. Oh, because, interesting. Because, I mean, the movie isn't saying like, ah, Facebook is great. It's made the movie age great. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Right, because the movie itself isn't saying that Facebook is great. It's saying that this is something that we're conversing about now and is in our zeitgeist and the implications of it. And now we see, you know, years later that it's become this insane conglomerate and bigger than we could have ever expected or even people in the movie like sure. ever expected like this movie started to get uh, the reputation that it's one of if not the best movie of the decade right around 2017 2018 when all the Cambridge Analytica stuff was coming out and the congressional mm -hmm. hearings and you know just the way that we perceive Facebook as an entity and Zuckerberg as a as a leader and I think he thinks the way that he's perceived has changed, but we as a people still see him as this really creepy, weird lizard man. I was just going to ask. He's so how weird. The, how does your perception of this movie change if he is, in fact, a lizard man? Does that change the movie? 
<laughs> well, it's it's always. Have you ever seen the SNL clip of Mark Zuckerberg, Jesse Eisenberg, and then oh, yeah. Andy Samberg? Mm-hmm. And you watch these two people interact, and not well. Jesse Eisenberg plays obviously the role very different. He's not trying to be a character. Mark Zuckerberg in an environment like SNL, where that is so hinged on getting people to like you, which comedy is. He's trying to perform comedy and it's so awkward and stiff. And like he, his timing is so wrong and, but he wants to be liked so, so, so bad by different people that like cooler people, right. More people who are well liked in terms of a different area of life. Um, so while Jesse Eisenberg obviously is doing something so different, the essence of motivation, even just in that moment, is so seen. I think it creates a big high insight too for the acting category. And like it, we as a society didn't have a ton of uh, experience face-to-face with Mark Zuckerberg in 2010 compared to what we know of him in 2022 uh, where we're like, oh, yeah, Jesse Eisenberg. Nailed it. Mark Zuckerberg's a creep, and he played a creep perfectly in that movie. Well, it's the most human Zuckerberg has ever been, is this movie. Sure, because in reality, he's a lizard. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, it's like what you're saying, Chris. Like, he is so slimy and like a weasel in the, yeah. in a sense. And like, I almost feel like Zuckerberg's performance is closer to that of like, Ben Shapiro than it is of Mark Zuckerberg, mm, you know, yeah. and I don't mean that as a, as a negative because I think that, you know, doing a movie with Zuckerberg just being Zuckerberg wouldn't work, you know, it, it would just be way too strange. And here, <laughs> there, there's a human quality to him, you know, he feels like an actual person. Like when I watch Zuckerberg now, I'm just kind of like eh. boring. He's boring. Yeah, he's so boring. Like he's just plain and milk toasty and someone gave him a billion dollars like it's just it's just bad i love the story of that he rented out a space for him and employees to watch this movie and i cannot (laughs) i didn't know that (laughs) i cannot imagine how awkward that must have been uh because this is not flattering it's not unflattering uh, it's not flattering but actually in terms of how mark zuckerberg is this is probably the nicest it could have been on him because they made him kind of sympathetic which he's not but it's not nice in a lot of ways so that must be awkward seeing everyone uh, all your co-workers and people you employ sorry my prod is at the cleaners like that must have been so awkward but that's also kind of the interesting thing about this movie is that Yes, I agree it's not the most flattering portrait of Zuckerberg, but now, you know, knowing everything that we know and how everything has played out in the past decade or so, like, it should have been harder. That's exactly what I, yeah. And I mean, more so probably on, you know, his decisions and what he was after rather than his personality, you know? Right. Um, It's just interesting that, you know, as time has gone on, how our conversation around Facebook has changed, but the essence of it you know has remained the same mm-hmm. so going back and watching this movie you're just like oh i wish yeah. i wish sorkin and fincher would just dig just a little bit deeper about what he was doing and the implications of how that would affect us you know years later but obviously at the time you can only do so much can i say too it's a crisp two hours 
It is a crisp two hours. Yes. It's they 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 don't like nothing. No time is wasted. And I feel like they could have gone another half hour. Scorsese would have done this in four. He would have. I would have watched all four hours. Yeah. And I would watch every minute of it. Yeah. And I wouldn't complain. (laughs) No. Well, Chris, you were talking about the runtime. I mean, what's amazing is that, like, you know, Sorkin's scripts are notoriously long. You know, this one comes in at like 162 pages and they get it down to two hours because, you know, he comes in to pitch the movie and they're like, all right, why don't you read the script uh, as fast as you want it to be performed and we'll time it. And it was like exactly two hours. Like, that's just unbelievable. And again, you know, pairing it with Fincher, who is a known perfectionist, and you would think that that would make, you know, the process longer and then make the movie longer. But no, he was all about like, you have to do this 40 seconds shorter, you know, do this 50 seconds shorter, just go, 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 go. And, you know, knowing when to cut and understanding the the timing of the the rhythm and the pacing of the story is just, mm. you know, not that that has anything to do with analysis, but it's just really fun and interesting to unpack that. Yeah. And not to not to plug anybody who's not the three of us, but there was this great uh, video essay I saw years ago on YouTube that for whatever reason has really stuck with me. It's from this YouTube channel called uh, Lessons from the Screenplay. I love and Lessons it, from the Screenplay. It, it, they're great. And they really broke down the uh, the first scene in, in uh, this movie, and it's fantastic. Nerd. One of the <laughs> one of the questions I had in, in relation to analysis has to do with, you know, the final line of the movie. You know, you're not an asshole, Mark. You're just trying so hard to be, you know, as Mark sits there and friends Erica as he continues to refresh and the facts about the real life people scroll by. I feel like my interpretation of that changes with each viewing. Like, are they trying to say, like, you know, feel better for this guy or feel sorry for him? Or uh, are they being a bit more factual, like? This guy clearly isn't evil, but he's got a lot of problems. Like, what do you guys make of that? Because I I don't think like it's a perfect final statement, but I don't think it's as cut and dry as it is the first time. Yeah, I think the point of that is he's exactly where he started. He has done so much and so much has happened. He has made so much money. He owns a billion dollar company. His best friend is suing him and at the end of the day, even if he does get what he wants, it doesn't matter because he's going to be one of the youngest billionaires in the world and created one of the most culturally influential institutions currently on the planet. But at the end of the day, personally, professionally, and emotionally, he is an absolute failure. He -hmm. has not progressed in any way. He is in the same, he is back in his dorm room thinking about the same girl over and over and over. Just now he's using his own platform to do it. And he's lost everyone. He'll never learn. No, yeah. I, I think a big part of the open-endedness, open-endedness of the ending when it comes to Mark is also kind of comes back to what I was saying about the, the, the lack of relationship that society had with Mark Zuckerberg in 2010. Uh, you know, there was some sort of knowledge of him. Obviously, they were able to make a movie about him. But uh, they're... We've got 12 plus years since then. So I think it's, it, yeah, I, I, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think Caroline kind of nailed that, that answer as well. I'm going to 
blow her ego up. My ego is about to get so big. I might invent invent Facebook. <laughs> She's wicked smart. Wicked smart over here. Um, do you guys have any other final points of analysis that you want to make? I really like the intern hire scene when they almost uh, have that competition. And I think it's so not only is it fun, mm-hmm. um, but I think it also speaks to the second they get a little bit of power above someone else. They treat them like monkeys. Yeah. It's just, and it also reflects about like the labor practices at big tech now. I mean, it, it was, I don't think that was the intention, but now it feels so much. Yeah. It's prescient. As big tech gets bigger, this become this movie becomes more and more relevant because while this might be about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, you could see this translated to any of these guys. Well, we're currently living in the midst of the utter uh, breakdown of Twitter. So I think this is a great document to watch alongside the, you know, day to day news coming out of the this giant of the industry that is falling apart and in front of our eyes. So I and it and a lot of it's coming from the workers who are being treated like monkeys and they're not taking it anymore. They're like we're not agreeing to any ultimatums. We're out of here. So it's kind of a very full circle moment to do this movie at this time. Yeah, very well said. Um, so uh, with that, you know, we've talked about this movie, you know, so much, and it's obviously one of our favorites. But we have to answer the final question: Why do we love this movie, and how does it add to our love of the film medium? So let's go around the horn here, Caroline. We'll start with you. Oh. Um, I love this movie for many, many reasons. Um, I love a good script. Uh, I, I am not someone who is easily distracted by beautiful visuals. If, if the script's not there, I'm out. And uh, this is just both. It takes incredible visuals, an incredible director, and combines it with an absolutely Im- almost impeccable script. And um, it has cultural relevance. Um, it has incredible performances with complex characters that interest me. It's stylish. Um, it's a great character study and uh, is incredibly well paced. So, uh, yeah, I like it for all the reasons why I'm here. <laughs> I love <laughs> movies and this is the example of how to do it right. Great answer. Love that. Chris, what about you? Uh, I, I, I agree. You know, it's, uh, it all comes down to the script. I think it's, I, I'm going to give Caroline such an ego. It's I, like I said, a million times in this episode, I am the biggest Sorkin fan out there. And this is just quintessentially Sorkin and it gets more relevant each and every time you watch it, it gets, and you take something else away every time you watch it. And it's just got, it's got this quality about it. It's, Caroline and I had a conversation about whether or not this is the best movie of the 21st century. After a lot of things, I think I, I Caroline said it was, and I think I agree with Caroline once again. It just it, it checks all the boxes of what needed to be done to make this movie good, and then by combining the creative team that it does with director. Uh, writer and actors and you know and we talked a bit about the score earlier too and editing also won an oscar so all this group together this this almost perfect storm created what in some ways shouldn't have worked because a lot of times i have problems with movies 
about real life that happen that are made very quickly afterwards, like uh, Mark Wahlberg's Patriots Day. Like <laughs> I knew you were gonna say that. Uh, ridiculous. It comes up a lot. That's weird. <laughs> it's just, I, I, but it 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 sticks the landing, and in a lot of ways, it shouldn't. Because that story wasn't done being told. It's still not done being told. But there shouldn't be a sequel. <laughs> and it's fantastic. Damn, best movie of the 21st century. And that's that's a really hard list to make. It is. Uh, I had it on my list of the my favorites of the 2010s. I, I had it at number five. I would probably move it up closer to the top, maybe like three at this point. Because, um, okay. I mean, it's one of my favorite movies ever. And. But 21st century, I mean, there's a lot of movies that came out during the 21st century. So like, <laughs> That's I know. But, um, yeah, I think for me, you know, continuing off of what you guys said about the script, you know, I'm also such a huge Sorkin fan. And, you know, this script has all of his greatness within it. But it also is an outlier in his career because it's about bad people, which I just find incredibly interesting. But I really love when a movie can take the spoken word and use it as the action. You know, you mentioned earlier, Caroline, there's no quote unquote action in this movie other than like the party scene when the cops show up and Fincher goes handheld for one second, which is obviously very strange for him. But by and large, it's the words that hold the audience's attention. And I've always hated when I've had film professors or had other critics say like, don't have too much dialogue uh, in your movie or else it becomes theater. And it's like, why is that a bad thing? Also, that's stupid. It's a bad you know? take. Like, yeah. Bad take. You know, there are so many movies like this and Steve Jobs and Birdman that have proved that wrong. And of course, you know, Sorkin was at first a playwright. And so mm-hmm. translating his, you know, achievements on stage to the screen and then pairing that with Fincher, who is, you know, the ultimate visual technician you know, it just creates something really special. And everyone in this movie is firing on all cylinders. And it's just really wonderful to see, you know, how everything worked out. It's the right script, the right director, the right players at the right time at their career with the right amount of money. You know, it's kind of a feat that it happened. And it's amazing that they captured it on film forever. And, you know, again, in terms of the personal attachment, this was this movie changed my life in a lot of ways because this was the first movie that really made me think, hey, maybe I want to be behind the camera. Maybe I want to be a storyteller because, you know, the writing and the directing really grabbed my attention. And it wasn't just about the performances, you know. It's like this story has to be told in this specific way with everything else going on around them. And it's a feeling that doesn't come up often, you know. But when it does, when a movie totally changes your perception of everything, you know, about artistry and creation and the thing that you love, so dear you know that's special and it's special to me uh, in that way and it, i have to watch this movie once a year you know it's like a holiday for me um there's scenes that i get so excited about there's um new things for me to take away there's so many quotable lines the one line that did jump out to me this time around that i didn't really pay that much attention to in the past is when they're in the beginning, when they're doing the hacking scene, Dustin Moskovitz uh, turns on the TV and he's like, hey, Shark Week's on. And his roommate wakes up and goes, great white, beautiful fish, and just falls right back to sleep. <laughs> it's just, there's so many moments like that. You know, don't fish, eat other fish, the marlins and the trouts. <laughs> and, 
you know, it's just one that I go back to constantly for inspiration as well as comfort. So it's one of the best ever. And that's why I love it. Well, you know what they say. You don't get 500 million friends without making a few enemies. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's it for the episode, guys. Uh, You can listen to Caroline and Chris over on uh, the Snubs podcast. It's a really fantastic show. You won't be disappointed listening to that. Um, And thank you guys so much again for coming on and, you know, answering my cold call of an Instagram DM. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Thank you for having us. Of course. You guys are welcome back anytime. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. It has been a long time coming, and I put in so much work into this episode, and I'm so glad that it's finally out, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, if you like the show, please make sure to like, comment, subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform of choice. You can also follow the show on social media. Frankly, I love movies on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Letterboxd at BigWalls21 for all recent movie reviews. Also, big thanks to Rihanna Henson for doing the artwork for the show and to Kanan J. Harris for doing the theme song. Couldn't do this show without them. They are the best. Next Thursday, I will have the next diary entry out all about the movies that I watched from February 1st all the way through the 15th. It is going to be a very fun entry. I watched a lot of cool stuff. I hope you guys enjoy, and I hope everything is going well in your movie-watching journey and in lives in general. I will see you guys next time. Until then, I'm Josh Wall, and frankly, I love movies. Music